Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and joining me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. It is episode 57, uh, the 13th of April, but uh, I got a big old correction. Man, we were we had a whole thing. We'll talk about this last one, last ep- last episode, Operation Found Manuscript. I bet that nobody's even paying attention. You know what the problem is? Operation Found Manuscript was episode fifty four. I just got them jumbled up. Oh, episode fifty six was Operation River Willow. So no, the code the <laughs> name the operation name didn't have nothing. Ding dang thing. <laughs> Found manuscript was the one where they went around to the mines and there was the pirates. I done dangest. Uh, so yeah, the last one was River Wi- Operation River Willow, not Found Manuscript. Found Manuscript was the first off in the Kenya Act. Dangus. This one though, episode fifty four, fifty seven, is Operation Tobacco Beetle. <laughs> so, you know. This is this is the thing. It's almost like we've you've inadvertently shot yourself in the foot because we had this whole discussion about uh, the naming no. conventions, the operations, and how they don't actually have necessarily anything to do with the content of the actual operation. Because of course they're like code names. You don't want if the code name is intercepted by the enemy, you don't want them to know what the plan is. But if they had, if the names had something to do with the content, you would have picked up on that much quicker. Uh, you would have been like, Operation Found Manuscript, there isn't even a manuscript in this one. Oh, wait. <laughs> well, then that just means that they're working, because uh, I'm not a secret agent. They done confuddled me. They, f- they even fooled the very DM who created them. Yeah. Meanwhile, live from Eberron, we got McGill coming in at session 11. Something called Special Delivery to the Tower of the Twelve? Yeah, that's right. Going into Korth. Oh, yeah. To the Tower of the Twelve. <laughs> Not Karth, Korth. Classic. Korth. Ugh, classic. <laughs> yeah. Korth, not Karth, in the nation of Karnath. Yeah. Jeez. Um, man, who should start? Well, I'm, I I can start if you want, because I got to tell you, this is a, a real short one, uh, and there's a, a good reason for it. Should I just kick us off? Yeah, sure. And I mean, I'll I'll probably that that'll give me a good uh, measure of how much to dig into my thing. Uh, it'll probably be quite a bit because the reason that this is going to be a shorter one for me is because I want to say the last like third of this session was just letting the players like take care of, you know, quality of life stuff. They did a lot of shopping. They did some healing. Uh, downtime. I don't know. Do you, Yeah, downtime. Exactly. How do you, do you often like, let your player just sort of turn it over to your players and go like, is there anything you want to take care of now that you're in this new town? And they go like, Oh yeah, I want to, I want to sell this. I want to buy my spell components. Is there a guy who can identify this scroll I found? 
I mean, do you often do that? Yes, 100%. Um, in the case of my regular game, though, with the MPOC, though, it's rarely ever limited to like where they are at the time. Usually it's like every few operations or so, it'll be given like a some length of downtime and they can literally just do whatever their characters would do in that time. And that's something I, I take interest in. Like I, I want to know what, their characters would do when they don't have missions but similarly like i have my uh cyberpunk game and that's like that's very heavily driven by like you know what the characters are feel like doing like they're not always since they're since i'm not doing the same thing where it's like they have an employer that's giving them jobs instead it's the more typical cyberpunk thing of like they take jobs when they feel like um Right. Because of that, I have to be always open to like, you know, sometimes they're going to go get a job and I'll have the chance to like insert whatever I have cooking or, you know, they'll want to hang out around their home base or like meet their neighbors or and that's all stuff that I like have set up already is to provide to them to like like I, I had figured out sort of like who their neighbors were and stuff before they even uh pursued that downtime activity and i've definitely done something similar to that where it's almost it's almost like i present it sort of like an open world and the players can sort of pick a direction explore and you know do whatever they want and then i will insert hooks into their adventures kind of based on opportunities for them you know but in yeah, this case um, uh, i i i just like to say that like on that note i'd say i do the same thing with my cyberpunk game but the funny thing is is that like it's an open world but for some reason everything that you do ends up being connected to all the other things you do <laughs> like they go to one place and then the guy that they meet at that place they end up meeting at another place it's like huh that's a coincidence (laughs) it's that classic thing of like the rick and morty simulation that's only keeping up so much i suppose but like we only meet like like the same 20 people over and over again (laughs) i guess (laughs) um Anyway, all that to say that the last like third of this one was just letting the players have some downtime and they didn't engage like they didn't do anything especially noteworthy. It was mostly just sort of, you know, like inventory management, selling loot that they had found, acquiring potions, buying goods and uh, just sort of. Downtime, standard downtime, the kind of stuff that you do uh, when you enter, you know, a new settlement in Skyrim or something like that. And uh, the reason it wound up occupying all the so containers much of and take all the stuff. Yep. The reason it wound up occupying so much of this session was also because the past, I want to say like three, four sessions, maybe even more, were the players like on the road uh not really going to any major settlements or anything like that so they had just never had any opportunities to replenish their supplies or take advantage of a marketplace um so yeah 
all that to say, uh, the conclusion of this session was not some big, exciting cliffhanger or anything like that. It was just standard player downtime. I find it sometimes important to do that sort of bookkeeping stuff at the end of the session because otherwise people forget what they need to do, you know? Yeah. Like you are brought, the, the necessities are brought to your attention over the course of the session. Um, if you just like, it, I find it's less likely that people are going to realize what they need if I start a session by saying like, hey, do you guys want to hit up the shop before you head out? Whereas like, if I say, oh, you guys can do some shopping at the end of the session, then they're very consciousness of what the, conscious of what they actually need. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to give my players that downtime when it makes sense. Like I just ran an adventure uh, on Saturday over the weekend uh, where the players were, Was it your you and I finale? talked about uh, off the air, but the, yeah, it was the big finale Ooh, of this I'm, mini I'm campaign. I'm curious how it went, um, but maybe you want to talk about it on the show. I'll t- you know, I'll talk about... Uh, I'm not going to talk about that mini campaign on the show because a lot of it, it did use material that we've already covered. Oh, like man, I had we, can, we, can, we can adventure. do the Spottle Parlor for the third time. Yet again, I'm not going to do it. But uh, maybe maybe in the tavern I'll talk about it a bit. In fact, I'll talk about it a bit uh, in this tavern because running a fiefdom factors into the next uh, the next little mini campaign that I'm running. Uh, and I'm sure I'm the I, same play group. I am interested how that uh, finale went because I know there had been some trepidation leading up to it. Yeah, well, it 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 went very well. Nice. I'll talk about it a bit more later. But did my uh, advice work? I tried it. Yes. I, I implemented it and it worked like a charm. I try to give my players that downtime at a point in an adventure where it makes sense. So sometimes at the end of the adventure, but in the case of uh, this sort of final adventure in a mini campaign where the players had to basically stake out a coronation and make sure that the Duke being coroneted was not assassinated so they had to like act as his guards essentially on this big day in a crowded area you know scope the place out keep an eye on all the guests make sure nothing goes wrong and so because they knew they were going to do that i let them shop at the beginning of the adventure so they could stock up on supplies for it Uh, and that's something where there's a fair bit of like there's a fair bit of like dramatic build up to the big finale. Like I think for that, I know that like, yeah, that that's something that I find easier is like, I know exactly what I'm going to pick out if I know it's going to be like the last session, you know, then you. Yeah, exactly. Like in that case, the players were going like, I want to get better armor or I want to make sure I have, uh, you know, enough ammo for my crossbow, things like that. All you need is one potion of invulnerability resistance to yeah. all damage types <laughs> um well i didn't give them that one but there was a lot of like i found all these unmarked potions in a wizard's tower i want to get them identified to see if i can use them a lot of stuff like that i actually i think i got a potion of invulnerability like right at the end of uh horde of the dragon queen for like the final big battle where we fought like a crazy like 
multi-stage super dragon boss. And uh, yeah, it w- it's one of those things like, because it's just a potion, right? Like it's just other people were getting like crazy artifacts and stuff. And I was like, hey, can I get it? Like we're level 20 now. Can I get this? Like uh, this, this is like a very high level potion. Can I get it? And it's like I get hit by the dragon. It's like I take half damage. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah pretty good against a dragon anyway so this adventure begins uh hot on the heels of the previous one where the players had escaped the house of pain cult and they had rescued the still unconscious daughter of the ki- of king caius of korth and so they are king heading caius. back to Cor- oh but he spelled it different king caius yeah he didn't spell it K-Y-U-S-S. No, it's K-A-I-U-S, Caius. I think I've done that before. Caius? <laughs> it could be Caius. Well, no, it's, I just it's went just with what the was Ka- in the source book. Like, like, do you know, do you know, do you know Caius? Not personally. K- K-Y-U-S-S. It's like a big evil worm god in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I think it's from Greyhawk, actually. And it's also the name of a kick-ass band that is like... uh, I think it's related to Queens of the Stone Age in some way. Anyway. Cool. (laughs) Stoner metal. But uh, yeah, Caius. But I'm pretty sure, like, I think that I, I actually did that in... You know, because I keep mentioning this game that I was in that was like had Eberron built into the setting, basically. And so like that's how that's where I recognize Korth from. And so like I think there was the exact same thing of like the DM said King Caius and I was like, Caius, (laughs) it's a big wait a minute, (laughs) evil wormed God. No, not that Caius, a much more mundane Caius. So they have the king's unconscious daughter uh, and Nikto's new follower, Kolo Thoth, just called Cole, uh, is carrying her over his shoulder. And they're headed back to Korth and Mervyn sort of pipes up and he goes like, so I don't mean to rain on your parade, but what what exactly do you plan on doing with her? You're just going to march into Korth, heads held high with the king's recently kidnapped daughter? And uh, you don't think that's going to be a problem, especially given the fact that you all got fancy dragon marks now. Um, and uh, so the it t- the players take a moment and gives them pause and they're like, yeah, how exactly do we want to approach this? And uh, they're walking through uh, a section of of the like a section of the map called the Nightwood on their way to Korth. And so they they're discussing, like, how do we sort of bargain our way in here, especially because uh, they saw they snuck into Korth before and they saw that it's just full of guards and enforcer elite. And they're like, you know, the heat's going to be on to us as soon as we get in there. What should we do? Well, and And it's not the elemental evil. Um. And while they are hanging out, they get ambushed again. They, oh, they dang, keep on is letting it that their dang gar- house of pain. It's not. Okay. It's not. Um, they are set upon by a group of 
bandit sorcerers, basically, uh, a real sort of Robin Hood type uh, cabal. And the they find so like suddenly they find themselves surrounded. They try to make an escape and a 20 foot tall wall of shimmering magic energy appears in front of them, like blocking their path. And, uh, you know, they, they're sort of backed oh, of up against this magic wall as these bandits uh, sort of move in and then one of them recognizes the king's daughter and they all stop and kneel in front of her. And it turns out that these bandits are all fugitive magic students from the Tower of the Twelve in Korth. The Tower of the Twelve is like the magic school in Korth. And it was shut down two weeks ago by the Enforcer Elite who were doing this massive magic purge in uh, Eberron. And so the all the students all the student sorcerers took to the woods and they've set up camp in the forest trying to decide what they're going to do next and so the as soon as they recognize that the players have the king's daughter they start sort of you know grilling them about what their intentions are and the players being bards are able to be very diplomatic and explain that they have rescued her from the house of pain and they want to to bring her back to the king and also gain access to Korth without immediately being thrown in prison for being magic users and uh, so all the the student sorcerers are like oh my gosh okay well you know Korth like all these other places in Eberron it's just become a total mess ever since the Enforcer Elite showed up and they shut down the magic school. And, uh, but, you know, maybe we can help you get in. And it's getting close to nightfall. So the players decide that they're going to camp with the bandit sorcerers and just sort of pick their brains, learn more about them and see if everybody can put their heads together and think of a way in. And uh, the the bandits don't have an easy solution on how to get in undetected, but they say that. Uh, but the players tell them about the masks of destiny and how they're they're questing for the masks of destiny. And of course, you know the sorcerers are like, "Yeah, you and everybody else." And they're like, "No, no, you know we we're hot on the trail." And uh, We'd like to learn more about them. And the sorcerers go, okay, well, we do have one in the vault in the Tower of the Twelve. But of course, no one except uh, one of the high wizard uh, teachers at the, the magic school would be able to access it. So if you can get us somehow into the Tower of the Twelve, we can get you the mask. And what ends up happening is the players decide, okay, they're just going to use their now high-level high bardic diplomatic abilities to talk their way into Korth and convince the, you know, whoever they encounter, be it the local guards who are called the White Lions or the Enforcer Elite, convince them that we did not kidnap the king's daughter. We seek an audience with the king to return her to her home. And uh, the sorcerers slip them a package and go, okay, if you can get into the Tower of the Twelve, place this package there, and in a day's time, we'll use it kind of like a portal to teleport our way in and retrieve the mask for you. And the players are like, okay, sounds good. So the next morning, the princess has come to, finally, 
and they head to the towering gates of Korth, and as soon as they arrive, they spot this argument going on between a squad of Enforcer Elite and a squad of the local guards. And uh, as they approach, like, suddenly swords are drawn, everybody spots the, the, the bards escorting the missing princess, and the Enforcer Elite are quick to accuse them of of, you know, tyranny and, and kidnapping. Skullduggery. And, uh, skullduggery, indeed. And uh, one of the captains of the city guards shuts down the Enforcer Elite and goes like, the king already closed the tower on your request. We're not about to round up every magic user and throw them in the pit. The princess's kidnapping was obviously committed by someone beyond our walls, likely a neighboring kingdom. And uh, the enforcer really go. You should learn. You do well to learn your place, lion. And you do well to learn yours, enforcer. This isn't your homeland. This nation belongs to belongs to King Caius, and only by his order will these prisoners meet the axe. And so they are. Uh, what they're escorted before King Caius, who is just sort of like he's delighted to have his daughter back, but enraged by just her going missing and everything that's been going on. So he forces the players to spend a night into the, in the dungeon and says like, I'll deal with you tomorrow. And so uh, part of this adventure was just the players learning to get along with their two cellmates uh, who, who, one of whom is just this like dirty commoner girl of about 17. And then the other is this giant, hairy, ugly, feral, crazy guy. And we spent a long time just sort of role-playing their interactions with Alan Dare being like disgusted to be in this gross setting with this obviously insane person. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a chance for a lot of sort of character beats and, uh, and you know, basic role-playing without doing actually much dice rolling. And then uh, the following day, the party is summoned before the king again, uh, and they meet uh, they meet the king as well as a baron who is a governor of Caneth East, and uh, the king has a bodyguard named Locke who is a warforged, and in this audience. The, uh, the king explains that he has no interest in beheading potential allies, especially a group so rich in magical power. And rather, the king would like, you know, as a, a form of thanks, but also uh, a means of serving himself, uh, he'd like to make them honorary citizens of Karnath and operatives in his private guard. This war still rages in the south of Karnath uh, between... The citizens, uh, well, between Karnath and the these mutant, twisted warforged that are trudging out of the Mornland every day. Something's going on in the Mornland, and all these like twisted terrors of magic and metal are wandering out of the the irradiated wastes and laying siege on the southern border of of Karnath. And so the king makes a bargain. He says. If you make your home in Karnath, using it as a base of operation for your adventurers, and you can use it as a base of, a, of operations for your adventurers, but you always return immediately upon my request so that you can help out in the war that is being raged in, on the southern border. 
and the king, in turn, will also provide some immunity as far as protection from authorities, such, such as the enforcer elite, but beyond Karnat's borders, the immunity will mean very little. And the players are like, oh, I guess this sounds like an okay deal, and it's certainly better than having to constantly be looking over our shoulders at the enforcer elite. So they decide to take him up on that. And uh, this is where I started to give the I well, this is where I gave the players the opportunity to explore uh, Korth and do some shopping and take care of a few things. And then as part, and so that took up a big chunk of time because they had a lot that they wanted to do. But then as part of that as well, uh, they sort of led this sneaky mission um, into the Tower of the Twelve, but it, they didn't have to be too sneaky because they had this new immunity from the Enforcer Elite. So first they tried, they, they were like, we're going to try and sneak in. They immediately got caught and then they pulled rank and were like, yeah, you can't touch us anymore, Enforcers. Uh, we are King Caius's like personal private guard. So you got to let us in there. We have some great matters of great import inside the Tower of the Twelve. And they went inside and they deposited the package that was given to them uh, by the bandit sorcerers and then they waited. The, the payoff to that part would come in the following adventure. But the one last thing that they wanted to take care of before the session closed was they, they were checking their timeline. They have about a week until the Black Pits Metal Festival and uh, so they were trying to figure out the best way to get there to make it in time to the, the festival. And they were trying to think, you know, should we try and take the lightning rail? It seemed like they might not get there in time. And so they convinced the, the, the Baron, uh, who would, they'd met along with the king, they convinced the Baron Zorlin uh, to arrange the escort to go straight through the Mornlands. And that is where it, it, it ended off with a, the promise of a big Mornland adventure. Man, straight through, no sleep till uh, hell pits. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if they had downtime, if they were just given Korth as, like, their home base, they could have staked out their where they want their new digs to be. Could have spotted the howling oh, uh, wolf. It, it, <laughs> yeah you know they were they were thinking about it uh i had given them i you know i mentioned before i had printed out a large scale map of uh of eberron and noted that in the karnath region around korth were several abandoned keeps that they could probably lay claim to so part of the session was them taking a look at all the the keeps in that area and pondering like okay which, you know, where do we want to go? And I nice. would pull up the Eberron, the Eberron wiki and read little descriptions of the various keeps in the area. And, uh, man. They didn't choose Fort Zombie. Would have been a hell of a, <laughs> would have been a hell of a twist if they put that package to have the people get the mask for them. And instead, it's a bomb and they're magic terrorists. All this stuff well, reminds me of, uh, you ever play much Dragon Age? That has a lot of, like, uh, persecuted magic people running away from magic academies, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, these guys, I wouldn't call them terrorists, but... They uh, could have been. As I said, in the twist. As I said, yeah, as I said, I, I took a lot of inspiration from Robin Hood, and I guess Robin Hood, 
You know, if you if you are the sheriff of Nottingham, I guess Robin Hood is a terrorist. Yeah, it's funny. I got an event in Crusader Kings 2 uh, where there was a band of merry men causing trouble in a forest in my uh, kingdom. And then I uh, had all these options of how I was going to deal with them. But in the end, we caught Robin, but then we... I was like, I want him in my army. So then he, I ranked him up and he got a wife named Marion and fun stuff. <laughs> I, shades of that in the session I just described. It's like different ah, ways it could play. You know, it, exactly. Um, yeah. All right. Eberron, man. <laughs> like, so. They were so desperate to get there in time that they were like, let's just get some company and head through the Mornlands. Let's get an escort. Isn't that it's like, the most direct route. Isn't that like right into the place where the radiant robots would be coming from? Yes. Yes, it yeah. is. But remember, it's a crazy big reward if they win the battle of the bands yeah yeah no i know Uh, that much gold is enough of a motivator for anybody also out of out of context of the game my players all wanted to know what the heck would go on in the mornlands and frankly i was pretty excited by the idea as well because mornland adventures man like crazy stuff happens there similarly uh, I have my characters in Act Two of Al's Aces in uh, Temporary Antennae. They are in Hell, Cania, eighth level, ruled by Mephisto, frozen hellscape of glaciers and whatnot. But uh, last time we talked about how uh, they went and saw the old member of Impox's finest, Alistair Infernus, who is now a professor. At Mephisto's uh, Hellfire Academy. And uh, so for this one, Operation Tobacco Beetle. Um, so Alistair had told them basically there had been some book thefts in the campus, which made him wonder if the Nightside Eclipse in- infiltration had uh, included his domain and indeed it had they discovered nightside eclipse in one of the sort of like lesser frequented less frequented uh library areas on the uh hellfire campus um but the thefts continued uh sure enough later and uh remember of course the players they're the characters are getting progressively more quote-unquote evil which means they're just kind of being like uh mean to each other actually this is worth mentioning um as part of being a wizard uh chessie took find familiar and got uh a little uh tarantula i think as a familiar named callisu um and uh generally callisu was a fun little friend but um and she'd like keep it under her hat and stuff but uh when ara kendor became uh mean because he was turning evil he would uh catch kalasu in his area of effect uh, attacks and not even apologize um and chessie <laughs> thought that was real mean 
so um, the thefts are continuing at the School of Hellfire. They got to head on back um, and investigate. So some more books have gone missing. And again, um, at this point, the characters are disguised as ice devils, big bug demon creatures. Um, and you keep forgetting. I, I did keep forgetting. Uh, that is possibly a connection you could draw to this operation named Tobacco Beetle. Because they're kind of... They, they're kind of looking like uh, spiky beetle creatures. Um, but yeah, they, basically in this investigation, I had the session divided up so that at first they were doing sort of, a, you know, check it, checking up with leads. Um, I basically gave them three leads to check up on. The first of which was a bearded devil who was uh like training soldiers in basic like hand-to-hand combat techniques devil soldiers of course but uh this was a scene i had set up where like one of the people they could get information from was this like bearded devil trainer um but he would in turn ask them to like spar with him to demonstrate for the class basically um, Chessie is the one who took him on and she activated blade singing such that she like the guy could not land a hit on her whatsoever. And so basically the thing about this that's really funny is like what you have to imagine it visually looking like is like this bearded devil is like, all right. Let's uh, show these people how it's done. And he says this to like this big blue bug devil uh, that then comes over and then they have a fight. But the devil does like this crazy, like defensive kung fu melee stuff, like like defensive melee martial arts stuff and like completely like dodges every attack. And the trainer just looks like a complete fool. And he's like, huh, that's uh, those are some weird moves. And uh, huh. Huh, like because that would the like magical disguise even compensate for the crazy type of stuff that like Chessie does as a blade singer. Um so but but they got uh they were able to impress the bearded devil and get some information out of him um and and not make too much of a scene at least. Um, there was also a an imp scribe that they had to interrogate who uh, was quite shifty. He he was scared basically because uh, he he more than anything he's just a- afraid of punishment. Um, but it's funny <laughs> uh, something I brought up um, previously and I said would come up again is one thing that I used a lot. There's a lot of in this act, like the characters interacting with imp guides or imp witnesses or whatnot. And so often I would reuse that. Any imposters? Uh, kind of that. There was that one imp with the pirates that was actually a pirate scout who was claiming to be crazy. But so like for those characters, um, for those imps, I reused the sort of bark from the goblin at the lighthouse 
uh, in the previous act where it's like, don't steal. It's haunted. Don't steal. <laughs> I just had all mm-hmm. the imps say the same sort of stuff, basically. <laughs> um, and then also uh, going through the archives in the uh, School of Hellfire, the third sort of witness or, or lead was uh, a spine devil archivist who was a uh, crooked and uh, was actually the advantage of that is that once they get the information from him, he's willing to pay them off to not rat him out. So a little bit of extra gold. Um, so basically they're, they're getting all their information from these guys trying to track down this book thief, figure out where these books went the archivist might know he's got some information. The imp, he's supposed to be like, uh, he he's a scribe, but he's supposed to keep his eye on this sort of thing. And so he's scared that he's going to get in trouble if he says what happened. And then uh, the bearded devil is just sort of like, you know, knows what's knows what's up in sort of like the security circles of the city. So he can say like, oh, there's been a break in here or there. After they've met with these three leads, then I have uh, the Nightside Eclipse who have infiltrated the place. They ambush the players. Um, there's uh, a bunch of uh, goblins and an elf uh, working for the Nightside Eclipse who try to ambush the players. Players fought them off, no problem. Uh, but the uh, goblins actually have. Uh, a copy of their like written instructions, like their orders to come and hunt down the players, sort of like that classic. Uh, I know Fallout does it a lot, where like you look in the inventory and you find a note that like says track down so and so, and it's you. Um, but this uh, gives them the final piece of the puzzle to tell them where in the archives they need to be looking uh, to track down this book thief. Um, and so they head into the archives. Um, they find a, uh, corpse hidden away among the shelves. And they also discover that the archives are being haunted by five specters. So there's sort of like a simultaneous, like investigation situation where there's like a body that's a clue hidden away in the archives that they need to find. But then also there's ghosts around that they have to worry about and fight, um, there's also, uh, five specifically five specters. Yeah. Five specters. That's what it says here. Um, there was also a little bonus objective. So there was a, there's a magic item called the pipes of haunting. Uh, and I had it in the, um, I had it in the archives, but I also had it as a bonus objective where like, Alistair would pay them if they turned in that item. They could keep it basically, or they could turn it in for a bit of like gold bonus. Um, little uh, rundown. Uh, you must be proficient with wind instruments to, to use these pipes. They have three charges. You can use an action to play them and expend one charge to create an eerie spellbinding tune. Each creature within 30 feet of you that hears you must that hears you play must succeed on a DC 15 wisdom saving throw or become frightened of you for one minute. If you wish all creatures in the area that aren't hostile to you automatically succeed on the saving throw creature that fails the saving throw can't repeat it at the end of each of its turns or can repeat it at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect itself on a success. 
A uh, creature that succeeds on saving throw is immune to the effect of these pipes for 24 hours, and the pipes regain 1d3 expended charges daily at dawn. Spooky pipes. Um, so, there was that. And then, uh, of course, they're following these leads, and they discover a tunnel that leads from these uh, this section of the archives into the catacombs where they had already uh, dealt with some nightside eclipse in one of the other sections of the catacombs. But of course, this is hell, man. This is sprawling, huge places. There's all sorts of places these nightside eclipse could be hiding out. It's the whole reason the MPOC agents are here. So players have to go down into the tunnel where there are three carrion crawlers lurking. They have to deal with some oozing carrion crawler uh, paralysis monsters that are lingering in the tunnels that lead to the hideout of the thief in the catacombs who is uh, with the nightside eclipse. And they get through the tunnels, beat the carrion crawlers, they get into the catacombs. Um, there's one pretty, like, I had one sort of, like, weak pushover bandit captain commander who's just a human who, like, can be made to surrender pretty easily. Um, but then the real thing here is that they find the thief and they find four wild devils, um, which is something that's going to come up more in the next operation is dealing with this idea of wild devils is like devils that are out in the frozen waste and they are like, you know, uh, they have shirked the, the, they have shirked the yoke of, uh, Mephisto's tyrannical rule. Is that did I use those words right? I, I'm not even sure. Yeah, I, I'm glad that this is going to be addressed because as soon as you said wild devils, I had questions. So yeah, that's that's going to be it. But that's going to be in the next operation. But they know sort of to look for them to to look into them in the next operation because they find four of them dealing with the thief in his hideout here in the catacombs that are connected via tunnel to the archives where the thefts just happened um and the nightside thief i had uh he's actually like basically like a a boss uh had made him into like sort of a boss monster he had um an acid breath attack he had extra acid damage on his attacks uh he was immune to acid damage he also had layer actions that included um darkness uh he could create a grasping pool that could pull and pull pull people prone um or he could create an insect swarm man this guy's just reptile it's just reptile from mortal <laughs> combat and i love it it's not the first boss i've had in this act that i said was basically like reptile is great um but there's another reason for this is that um so we can talk about Mortal Kombat some more. Well, no, it's not that. Although I had a thought earlier today, and I do want to just like very quickly mention it, is we were talking about um, the... You, we, we were talking about like the set design in the first Mortal Kombat movie, and I was saying how yeah. I, I loved it, but you were saying how it like looked bad. But the thing is... In, it, looks, it, it doesn't look bad. It looks cheap. Okay. Like, it looks really cheap. Here's the thing, though. In the second movie, they actually go to, like, you know, monumental historical ruins. 
and it looks terrible because ruins yeah. aren't designed to look cool. They're 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 not designed at all. They're ruins. They're just old stones that make people look real small and look the space real empty. Um, I mean, the second the Mortal Kombat Annihilation somehow cost more and looks way worse. It's wild. I, I don't know. for I all just my criticism of the first Mortal Kombat movie, the second one is just so much worse. Um, hey, what do you think? Speaking of reptile, what do you think? Because you know we've been watching the trailers for uh, this upcoming Mortal Kombat movie. What do you think about the fact that reptile seems to be just like literally a giant lizard? Uh, I mean, so in Mortal Kombat, the first movie, he's like kind of a reboot lizard some of the time, but then he becomes, he falls into a statue and becomes reptile. Um, but then when he dies, he becomes a bunch of bugs. Uh, so I don't know, maybe there's room for. The the fact is, I hadn't seen much reptile in the preview stuff, so uh, or I hadn't watched enough of the preview stuff to see much reptile. Um, so I was hoping they were maybe keeping him a secret because the first I mean game, I could, I could the be first wrong. game he it was a be, secret it could character. Be something else. Yeah, I'm, I it could I just be something think... else. But there is an anthropomorphic lizard man who can go invisible. So my assumption is that that's well, that reptile. sounds like reptile. Yeah, that sounds like reptile. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I, I he he hmm. looks like he looks like the fighter lizard man from the Soul Calibur games. Yeah, man, that's weird. Um, I mean, again, maybe they'll do the thing from Mortal Kombat where he turns into just like a scorpion lookalike. Oh yeah, but uh, Could you know, happen. also, um, I I just. Uh, Again, I like the, I just like my idea of like, I wish that movies, I wish, I think that Mortal Kombat movies, because Mortal, because Reptile was originally a secret character, they should like make him a secret thing in some way. They should like, I kind of like it in Mortal Kombat because he's like, you know, he's, he sneaks around like, it's not clear what his connection is to like the other bad guys. Um, But then again, it's not clear what Sub Zero or Scorpion's connection is to the anything either. Scorpion True. attacks Johnny Cage out of nowhere in a walk through the forest, and then Johnny Cage is literally transported to hell. How does he get back? Anyway, that's me getting and way then off Scorpion's topic. Scorpion's just back in the second one. Well, he explains that though. He explains, or or no, no, no. That's right. Uh, I I screwed up. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um. <laughs> yeah I, anyways i was gonna uh say we did it anyway we said we it wasn't just an excuse to talk about mortal Kombat, and then we did it anyway so what i was going to say is i think that the adventure that this one is based off the the uh adventures league uh adventure that i based this session off is um it's called the scrolls it's called the scroll thief uh ddex01 or ddex106 um and it's it's like what it says on the tin but but the real reason i bring it up is the connection because that 
arc that that season of the adventurers league is all about fighting the dragon cult and then sort of like spoiler alert but the big finale is that um flan is going to get invaded by uh, an evil black dragon named Vorgancharax, I think. Um, and and like throughout the season, you're basically throughout the season, you're uh, I think he's called like the maimed virulence or something. And um, throughout the season, you're you're meeting various forces that are secretly working with the dragon cult to arrange this coup that this dragon is going to uh, initiate at the very end of the season. But um, the build-up to that uh, is the thing. I Also, he might be green. I don't know. The thing is, black dragon, green dragon, the point is that this one ends with some sort of, like, black dragon boss monster thing. And so that's why this guy is like a reptile guy, is because I took the acid powers from that black dragon boss and applied them to uh, this boss, and so he has, and and that's also where his lair actions come from with the insect swarm and stuff. So it just so happens that uh, the boss happened to be perfect for reptile. But uh, catch- reptile, yeah, catching the thief and uh, the wild devils, they bring him to justice. They get the books, well, hell justice. Um, but getting the books and then getting these wild devils, of course, like I say. Uh, it means they have another lead, which is to go see what the wild devils are up to out in the wastes. And, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, the, the, the other big thing, the thing that's still lingering in everyone's minds at the end of this is like, who responsible this, you know? <laughs> who who who's behind that what what are the what's the night side eclipse up to what's who's who's behind their infiltration who's leading them who's what's all this you know i don't know if you got any guesses mcgill gosh uh I know you said who's responsible for this and i was like obviously the night side eclipse but their motivation i i couldn't tell you well, it's the night side eclipse, but uh, questioning hell has already frozen. I, I was over. thinking of like a specific. I was specific, thinking of like a specific villain that could be leading them, like a character. Oh gosh, is it a character that we've encountered before? It'd have to be, otherwise, how would you guess? Well, it could have been like oh a, yeah, unless like it was a like a legendary like a like Mephisto, right? That'd like be it cool. could exactly. Ooh, what a twist! I, I don't know, man. Who responsible this? Well, we're going to find out eventually. But it's oh. it's going to be uh, it's going to be someone we'll remember. Oh, is is it going to be oh, shoot, what's his name? Olian? <laughs> no, not Olian. Uh, no, o- Odium. Odium. Not yeah. Odium. No, no, it's not. It's okay. not the head. It's not the missing head of the Empire. Um, I do I, have. I, was gonna, little... I mean, it would have been too. Like that's set up, right? What happened to Odium? Well, maybe he's actually a turncoat. It feeds back into into the question I keep asking throughout this entire podcast, where it's like, is the Empire secretly evil? 
I have some little notes here, actually, that I found um, that uh, relate to just little things about the thing. So the three stolen books, uh, one of them was The Far Realms Observations Obfuscated. It's a white tome. One of them was a small red handbook that was called the MPOC Playbook. It was a list of past MPOC operations. Um, and then the final one was the official Mephistar Manual of the Plains, a big reference book slash atlas that's wrapped in cloth. And so the imp uh, knew that the uh, Far Realms book had gone missing. He knew that the lock had been picked and it would have been really hard to pick. Uh, but he was afraid that he'd get in trouble for not protecting it properly, so he didn't tell anyone. The bearded devil said that the playbook, he had been reading the playbook um, because uh, he had access to it because of Mephisto's alliance with the MPOC. He was like trying to learn security maneuvers from it, like like basically as a security chief, like a, a leader of the local uh, law enforcement of Kenya, uh, he was looking into like past uh, tactics of the MPOC but uh, while he was sleeping, someone stole it from him, and he was real mad about that. And uh, finally, the spine devil, the crooked spine devil, uh, sold the uh, big reference book for gold because he's a fucking greedy bastard. So those are how the books went missing. Those were the leads that they got. Um... And yeah, I've also got a little bit of behind-the-scene notes as well that I took around the same time, which is basically just that... Um, well, no, no, I'll reveal this later. I'll reveal this Okay. Later. Basically, I, I had at this point... At this point, I was like, I have written down uh, just sort of like the motivations behind the night side eclipse i guess i'll mm. i'll tell you this much you know the 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 players have so far had to deal with the night side eclipse in goblin town in castle agu with uh you, you know they ended up following the leads and that wasn't the night side eclipse that was kali sheer but it's still like they did that they did the night side eclipse stuff in goblin town and now they're in hell investigating the nightside eclipse but ara ara kendor had that vision of the nightside eclipse right launching an invasion from the deathlands north to the highlands uh poseidon sent him a vision i don't know if you remember yes well the thing is the empok they're sending their guys to goblin town to castle agu to hell they're sending them everywhere, but the place that the Nightside Eclipse may be launching an invasion? <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors, man. Mm. But we still don't know who's behind it, what the final goal is, apart from, you know, a theoretical mass invasion of the Highlands. And, uh, yeah. Next time, we'll catch up with, uh, Wild Devils. Intriguing. I'm definitely interested to hear what comes next. Hear who is responsible and also hear more about these wild devils. 
It's also funny. I have these uh, I have these little drawings I did of wild devils and like I can tell that they are like devil drawings that I based off of the old like first edition drawing of a lizard man by old Trampy himself. Oh, nice. I know the pose. I, I, I know it all. It's great. I like those old first edition illustrations. I sometimes bust them out as tokens in uh, my roll 20 game. Yeah, they're totally they're they're dope. They're great. So, yeah, actually, no, I I I don't want to just move on from that. Man, I I love uh the work of David S. Trampier. Do you know like the whole crazy story behind him? I don't know. I just oh know his God. work from the we, manuals. We should definitely talk about this on the on the way to the tavern and and, and maybe bring it up another time when I can get like some more uh, authenticated data and whatnot. But like, basically, so he did these like as classic as it is. The general, I think, basic reaction is that it's not terribly good art. Um, it's not the highest quality. It, it looks like low budget. It looks amateur. Um, and uh, so you it's know like, why I love that is because that looks like the kind of stuff that like I would doodle in my D&D binder when I was in grade six learning how to so play. So this is man. the thing. This is exactly why it is amazing and why I think a lot of people love David S. Trampier's art from first edition. His his goofy looking orcs and stuff. It's it's great. Um, but at the same time, you can imagine there is sort of like a critical response to that being like, oh, it's got bad art. And specifically like as he continued to be an artist and like worked for, I guess, TSR or, or whatever it was, um, you know, he probably would have taken a lot of flack back then from all sorts of people being like, why is the art so bad in Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> like... You can imagine people, you know, at the time, not a because a lot of it, I think for us now is like that, that nostalgia, that idea that it's like a childhood doodle or whatever. Um, in its original context, it's like you're selling this role playing game project and people are like, hey, it's a great game, but like, man, this art sucks. And so... I think that I mean, like I don't even know about that. I don't know that that would necessarily be the reaction at the time because it's also just kind of like what popular illustration looked like in the 70s, man. You look at like cartoons from the 70s and they're very sort of rough and and wacky looking and don't really adhere to many design principles. I feel like it, it it suits the time period certainly when it was first published. I mean, I think it's also certainly worth mentioning that like when you read reviews of RPG projects from pro products from the old Dragon magazines like they they do put a lot of premium on the quality of the art and stuff. I think that back then it just was like a bigger point of criticism. And so mm. I th I feel bad. I like and you'll see there's more to this story like but but on the baseline i think that he faced a lot of just like shit basically because he was the guy who did the Dungeons and dragons art and a lot of people were like i could have done better than that and um 
And a lot of people just sounded off about like, oh, bad art, whatever. Um, and, and so I feel bad for him on that level. The thing is, the guy literally disappeared. It got to the point where like no one knew where he was. Um, he wasn't cashing his checks. He disappeared off the face of the map. Wow. Then out of nowhere, uh, someone manages to land like it's like a college student does an interview with him as like a a local, like like just doing an interview with a local, and he's like a cab driver. <laughs> it, like I I I feel like there's more detail to the story that I should be bringing out. Like he had he had like a a cartoon about a dragon that he did that I think appeared in the backs of Dragon magazines and stuff. And like they, they there's all this stuff. Like he he I think he had his own game or he tried to have his own game or something. Whatever the case, it's so wild to me that like th- this arc of like guy does art of questionable quality for something that like no one could have known was going to be huge, huge, huge for years and years and years and just like continue to grow and grow. He does that. It grows and grows and grows. He continues to go along with it as the fan base continues to be like, eh, but the art's dumb. The art's stupid. Blah, blah, blah. And he has to put up with that until finally he's just like, you know what? Fuck this. Just disappears. He's gonna drive a cab. And then he, somebody finds him driving a cab, and it's like, holy shit, that's what happened to Drake. Like, it's so wild that someone was even able to put together, like, oh, that David S. Trivia? Like, like that that <laughs> interview that that interview even came up on the radar of someone to be like, holy shit, someone found David S. Trivia. Yeah, because <laughs> like wow. nobody knew where he was. It's wild. I gotta, I gotta look into this story more. Yeah, we get, we definitely need to discuss this further on future episodes. But this is a, this is a good start to the tavern. So we're here at the tavern now, starting with. Well, one last, one last note actually on that is uh, one more reason that I really like that first edition D and D art. It's got personality, man. Oh yeah. I feel Hell like yeah. especially after second edition, like third edition onwards. I don't know. All that it's the same as like Magic the Gathering art. Like it all just becomes really samey. I've been calling him David S. Trampier, but it's David A. Trampier. David A. Trampier. It's so wild. The 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 picture of him on Wikipedia is I think literally like the photo from the interview. It says David A. Trampier from <laughs> Daily Egyptian 2002. And it's like Oh, a wow. very low quality photo. Like it's really He's disappeared into obscurity again. And uh Yeah, yeah, they, it must this photo must literally be the photo um cuz it says uh reappearance in February 2002, Aaron Thompson did a night shift ride along with a local yellow taxi driver for an article for the Southern Illinois University Dude, student that newspaper. that is so wild. The taxi driver was David Trampier, who told Thompson he had moved to Carbondale from Chicago about eight months previously. Um, Thompson, who did not know of Trampier's work as an artist, published the story, Trampier's photograph in the Daily Egyptian. And that's, yeah, that's the, like, very poor quality Holy photo crap. they have in wow. his Wikipedia page. 
And uh, yeah, his his comic that he ran in Dragon was called Wormy. Oh, I know Wormy. Yeah. I've read Wormies. Damn. Well, you know, I know it's a cliche to say, but man, what a legend. Yeah, man. Love that guy. Hey, Tom, you want to know how to run a barony? I got some ideas, but you sure. So, um... I, I said I'd talk about it a bit more, but uh, this mini campaign that I just finished running, the overarching plot is that the uh, the players are hired by a duke to first conduct some business on his behalf because there was something going on. Someone within the royal court uh, was up to no good, and so the duke needed some impartial adventurers to carry out some tasks in advance of his coronation. Uh, this duke, his father, just died under mysterious circumstances, and he's about to be coronated uh, as the new duke, and he needs some, like, some new people he can trust. And so the players were carrying out uh, these deeds on behalf of the duke. And the big finale was the coronation, where uh, there were going to be a, a multiple assassination attempts on the duke's life, this is sort of like the last moment that the assassins could try and make their play before the Duke is officially sworn in. Oh, man, and it could have been uh, like a Batman so, style carnival of killers. I, it could have been. Instead, it was more, it was a bit more Game of Thronesy, where it was uh, assassins disguised as common folk uh, sort of come in with the crowd and then move into position and start taking out the guards that are positioned around the coronation while the players have to handle a couple of higher-level NPC villains uh, who had been established over the course of the mini-campaign. And uh, one of the players, one of the characters, uh, the player had said at the beginning that he wanted his character's personal story through this campaign to be exploring his ancestry, because... The, the character had been orphaned at a very young age, and then he was a half-elf, but he was adopted by the drow. And so he wanted to know, try to find out more about the circumstances under which he became orphaned and wound up under the care of the drow. And so what, I, what his story ended up being, uh, because he was working for the Duke, he gained access to the Royal Library, and he had traced his lineage to that area, and he found out that he was, the el his elf half was descended from an elven royal bloodline. And so, when they ultimately save the Duke, and win the day, and stop the assassins, um, the big reveal was that the, the sort of puppet master of this whole scheme was one of the barons from the duchy who was trying to make a power play to take over as duke. Um, and there was this elaborate plan, much like you did with uh, your your notes about the Nightside Eclipse motivations. Like, I made a point of writing out a whole document, the multi-step plan that this baron was enacting so that he could be, he, he could be crowned as duke without anybody suspecting that he was behind all of these assassinations and evil doing. And uh, the players uncover his plan, and they wound up just flat out killing the Baron. And so one of the rewards 
was that the character who was of a royal bloodline and who had just saved the Duke, the Duke put him in charge of the barony because now there's an open slot uh-huh. and he's a noble. So you've and got an so, opening. Uh, exactly. And so this next mini campaign that I'm going to run with the players, they wanted to continue with their same characters. So part of it is going to involve running this barony. And I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. It seemed like, like I didn't want to turn this D&D game into Crusader Kings, uh-huh. where all you're doing is like, you know, menu upon menu of options and deciding like, okay, I want to throw a hunt. Hey, I love, and, uh, I love that. I, I do that for hours and hours on end. I mean, yeah, but there's like, just get them to go play Crusader Kings if that's the case. It certainly doesn't lend itself to a group going on adventures together, you know? Um, so I wanted to find an elegant system where running this barony was part of it and like felt like a big part of the game, but it wasn't like this anchor. It wasn't like everybody except. Uh, Everybody except Callum has to has to go and uh, everybody except Callum gets to go on an adventure. But Callum has to sit at home and uh, instead he's got to, you know, do all the boring stuff. Didn't want that to be the case. So what I did is I did some Googling and I found this uh, this PDF from a site called The Blog of Holding, and it is a section of a larger source book that is called uh, The DM's Notebook. And uh, so here it is. Here's here's this part from The DM's Notebook. I won't read absolutely everything, but I think that this is an awesome way of having your players run a fiefdom uh, so that it's dynamic and interesting, and it doesn't just feel like boring politics all the time. So this is called How to Run a Barony. First up, high-level equipment. D&D equipment lists are great for level 1 characters, but there is a shortage in the player's handbook of shopping options for high-level characters. Here is some cool stuff that might be available for characters with a few levels of treasure in their pockets, and as the DM, you can give the PCs a shortened or expanded version of this list, or randomly determine what's available. I won't go through every option because it's a long list, But stuff that you can buy when you have a large, you know, wealth of gold and you have your own fiefdom. Uh, A house, level 10 militiamen, a catapult, a hippogriff egg, an ornithopter or hot air balloon, a ruined wilderness fort, a fortified mansion, 10 level 3 knights, a half share in a merchant caravan to double your money if the caravan survives, a temple, Um, on and on here, a warship of the line, and for one million gold, if you happen to ascend to the point where you are a D&D millionaire, you can buy yourself a world wonder. Pretty neat. It's almost, it's sort of like civilization. Yeah. But, uh, But here's the stuff about actually running the barony. Here's a framework for running a fief a barony, a kingdom, or even an empire. As your character gains levels, so will your land. 
If you rule wisely, your fief will grow rich, happy, and strong in military power. You'll collect followers and tax income, and you'll be called on to defend your territory with strong arm and wise counsel against invaders, traitors, and supernatural threats. Unlike a piece of magi magical equipment, or a campaign world, a fief is jointly owned by the players and the DM. Like a magic item, it provides benefits to the player, but it changes in response to the events of the campaign world, as decided by the DM. Characters may be granted fiefs by powerful NPCs, they may seize them through, through cunning or force of arms. If the characters win a battle, the size of their land may increase. However, if they back the wrong side of a civil war, they might lose their fief altogether and return to the carefree life of an adventurer. There is no expectation that a character of a certain level will have a fief this of a certain just size. This just like Crusader Kings. 11th, yeah, an 11th level character might rule a level 11 duchy or even a level 16 kingdom or have no land at all. And so to, to sort of summarize how this system works is... Uh, you're basically treating the fiefdom itself as a short-form NPC with a small character sheet. So uh, there's a chart here. Again, it's a bit of a long chart, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it'll give you a sort of a sense of these milestones. Uh, so first off, your fief itself has a level from 1 to 25 on this list. Um, level one is a manor. Uh, there, it has zero XP. It has an income of 100. Uh, and then level six is a barony. A barony has 50 XP and an income of 600. And like level 11 is a duchy. It has, uh, uh, XP of a hundred income of a thousand. And so here's the how top? this works. Hit me with the top. The very top is an empire. This is just um, like Crusader Kings. <laughs> an empire, uh, you, it, you, it, your fiefdom becomes an empire at level 21, though uh, the chart extends all the way to level 25. It has an XP of 200 and an income of 2,000. And so here's how this works. Um, besides XP and level, a fief has three attributes, three stats, military, wealth, and loyalty, which are rated from zero to two. Zero is bad, one is average, two is good. Attributes can't be raised above two or lowered below zero. And so the stats again are military, wealth, and loyalty. Military, a fief with a military of zero either doesn't have enough military strength to keep order, or it's composed of several warring parties. Either way, the common people are vulnerable to bandits and invaders. A military of one means that the fief has, uh, has enough strength to defend itself against common threats, but not enough to frighten its neighbors, and then a fief with a military of two has a powerful army and strong fortifications. While your fief's military is one, you can raise an army and engage in large-scale battles. Uh, in a battle, your army is represented by five units, which have the stats of a fighter of the fief's level. So if you have, say, a barony, which is level six, your army is represented by five level six fighters. Although each unit is made up of many men. 
Every time your fief gains a level, all casualties are replaced. If your military is two, you can raise ten such units. Wealth. A wealth of zero means your fief is only one bad season away from starvation. The ruler of a poor fief doesn't get any money from taxation. A wealth of one means that there is the usual mix of prosperity and poverty among the common people, and most citizens can afford their taxes, but not much more. A wealth of two means that the kingdom is rich, whether in heaps of gold or full to bursting granaries. If a fief's wealth is one when you gain a level, uh, your party gets gold equal to the income listed for your fief's level on the fief advancement chart. So that chart I was reading before, uh, if you manage to gain a level as a character and the wealth stat of your fief is one, you get the listed income. So as an example, uh, the barony's income on the chart is 600. So if I gain a level while I rule a barony and my barony's wealth stat is one, I get 600 gold from my income tax. Kind of cool. Um, and then if the fief's wealth wealth is two, you get twice that amount. So if I oh, yeah. have a really wealthy barony and I gain a level, I get 1,200 gold. Again, this and is just loyalty, like Crusader Kings, but I love it. It's like a stripped down version of it. Uh, and then loyalty. Loyalty represents your political power. A loyalty of zero doesn't necessarily mean you're hated. You may have many loyal adherents, but your rule faces open opposition. A loyalty of one means that most people accept your rule. You have strong allies among your vassals, although some conspire against you. And then a loyalty of two means your subjects unquestioningly obey you, whether through love or fear. Some might oppose your rule, but they are weak and divided. While a fief's loyalty is one, your party can maintain one free henchman of the fief's level or lower. While you're in your fief, the henchman can be replaced or swapped for any other henchman of the fief's level or lower. If a fief's loyalty is two, you get two free henchmen. So you just get, you get some, some guys. And then improving a fief. Rulers may invest in their lands to improve their security, happiness, and profitability. Uh, it costs the amount listed by level under tax income on the fief advancement chart to raise a fief's military wealth or loyalty attribute from zero to one. You can't buy your way into a, a, a ranking of two, but you can save yourself from a ranking of zero in any of those stats. So, like, <clears throat> if my fief has a wealth score of zero and, you know, my people are starving, uh, I got a, I'm a baron, again, so I've got a barony. Uh, the listed income on that chart is 600. So if I invest 600 gold into my barony, it is no longer impoverished. It raises to a wealth score of one. Nice. Uh, but then to ascend higher than that, you got to do other stuff. So rulers may spend money to settle the wild lands. It costs the amount listed under tax income to give five XP to a fief. Players may only buy XP for fiefs of their level or lower. Instead of paying to improve their lands, attributes, and levels, however, rulers may engage in politics and perform adventures by agreeing to marry the daughter of an important uh, vassal or slay a dragon who threatens the realm. A player might increase the fief's loyalty without spending any gold. The DM may give fief attribute bonuses and XP as treasure rewards. Fief attribute bonuses given as treasure may raise a fief's military wealth or loyalty from 0 to 1 or from 1 to 2. And XP bonuses given as treasure may raise the level of a fief above its ruler's character level. 
So, you know, if uh, if I'm level six and my barony is also level six, then I get then I get 10 XP for my barony. Suddenly it is level seven. But if I manage to get 50 XP for my barony, suddenly it grows and becomes a duchy. Um, there's even like a little character sheet. It's it's really small. It's like the size of a a tiny little strip of paper, <clears throat> but it's kind of cool. Like I like that. Just there's this little summary: thief, ruler, level XP, overlord, vassals, military wealth, loyalty, and that's it. And then uh, the final the the final bit that I'll read here is uh, thief events up to once per game session. When at least a month of game time has passed, the players or DM may roll on the Fief events chart based on the result of the roll, the kingdom's XP level and Fief attributes may be adjusted, and monumental changes may shake the kingdom. So you, you got a D20 handy, Tom? Ooh, I can. Yeah, pull it up. So uh, Fief event rolls can be made by players, or they may be made secretly it. by the DM. Oh, boy so that he or she can weave the role into the events of the story. So uh, in-game, once a month, something happens from the FIFA events chart. What did you roll? I did stuff like this with the Crimson Tower. I rolled a nat one. A nat one? That's the most exciting one. The horror of the year. It might be a threat of war with a neighbor or monster tribe. The rise of a major villain or the appearance of a supernatural evil. Whatever it is, it's a major threat to the thief that will require at least a successful adventure. If the PCs fail, the thief may lose a level or even be captured by the enemy and go out of control. And so here's a sidebar. Anarchy. When a thief is out of control, the PCs have lost all power. They may still be the rightful rulers, but they no longer get any benefits from, the, from ruling the thief no income, and they no longer make rolls on the FIFA events chart. While a thief is out of control, its XP and attributes do not change. After difficult adventuring, the PCs, PCs might find a way to regain control. PCs can also voluntarily place their realm in out of control by temporarily assigning it to a loyal NPC vassal. In this case, they will be, they will be able to resume control of the realm at any time. So, like, you can basically set your fiefdom to away and put a vassal in charge, and you don't get any, like, benefits oh, man, or money from it. man, I want to set it. my fiefdom to anarchy. You can do that. You can just abandon it. I'm the um, lord of the waste. <clears throat> here are some other items from the thief events chart. Uh, and they do go from, like, worst to best. So, like, a nat one is absolutely the worst thing that can happen. There's, there's some big thing. The Tarask suddenly bursts out of the ground in your barony, oh, and you got to deal with it. Oh, yeah. Um, but other things, uh, a bandit attack. If your military is zero, an important settlement or caravan is attacked and the wealth is reduced by one, uh, crop failure. If wealth is zero, a storm blight or poor harvest spells bad news for farmers. The thief loses 10 XP, uh, which means it loses a level. So your thief might actually shrink from eight to 13. The kingdom is stable. If your military wealth and loyalty are all at least one, you get plus one XP every month to the fief. Uh, there's some other things here. Uh, army clears a wild area. There's a caravan. Immigration from the wilderness. And then the top four are all just like big old bonuses. Fortification. You get plus three XP to your fief. 
Uh, so that's like close to a third of a level. You gain plus one to military. If your military is already two, you gain plus one to loyalty. There's the tax surplus. Plus three fief XP, plus one to wealth. And uh, if you already have a wealth uh, score of two, you just gain money equal to the tax rate. Just an extra bonus. Uh, 19 is a festival. Another plus three fief XP, plus one to loyalty. And if you already have max loyalty, then you get plus two more fief XP. And then if you roll a nat 20, the population grow grows. You get plus five fief XP. If your military, wealth, and loyalty are all at least one, a neighbor wishes to join the prosperous fief, and you instead gain plus 10 fief XP going up a level for your fiefdom. Cool. And, uh... And yeah, so you can find this PDF for free. It is a sample of the DM's notebook on blogofholding.com. Just search for it. You can, I found it just by literally searching for D&D, how to run a barony, and this came up. Um, and of course, you can also buy the entire DM's notebook, which I may well do because I thought this was a really cool little system. But uh, this excerpt alone answered all the questions I had. How do you run a, a barony in D&D? Well, I'm going to do it just like this. Hell yeah. That was a great one. It gave me all sorts of ideas for future topics. You got anything to talk about in the tavern? Well, uh, we've gone pretty long now. I did talk a bit about David A. Trampier. Got his name That's wrong true. a whole bunch. Uh, there is one topic I just wanted to bring up, though, and this is more of a general G DM chat thing. Okay. When I what previously running role playing games, I generally made it my policy that I didn't like to read to my players. I didn't like to like if if I got read aloud text. I would paraphrase it. I would paraphrase it as much as possible. Like I never wanted to be reading text, just like reading out text to my players um, as part of running the game. However, lately I've found that I've done a complete 180 on that policy. Like it, it used to be also something that was sort of reinforced by the old blog D&D uh, &D with porn stars where the DM ran that also like he he was very vehemently against the idea of reading to his players he's like that makes you feel like you're in school or something like i don't want to do that and i generally agreed with that but lately i found like i've first of all i've just the real development of it for me is that my main game had to switch to text only uh, and therefore I started writing text passages so I'd have them ready uh, in the game. And then doing that got me into the habit of writing text passages for all my games, um, which I have then gotten into the habit of just like reading when appropriate. And uh, it actually works really well. <laughs> I wish I hadn't shunned the idea for so long. I'm wondering what your feeling is on reading to the players. Oh, I got no problem with it at all. Uh, what I what I do is I will absolutely read pre-written text 
from adventure modules. I will write my own. Uh, I got no problems reading my players. However, I don't read pre-written dialogue. When I'm playing an NPC, I do my very best to just embody the NPC and interact with the players in my own voice or like in, in my own voice speaking as the NPC, as opposed to like generating a dialogue tree or reading pre-written lines. But when it, certainly when it comes to like description, um, I, I can even give an example. Uh, I've talked before about the elf in the house module that I like, the murder mystery in a manner. Uh, you know, that manor has got like 50 rooms, so I really have no problem when the players enter a room. I'm just going to read the uh, descriptive text from the module for that, as opposed to brainstorming ways to paraphrase descriptions for 50 different rooms. So I really got no problem with it. I mean, ultimately, anything that makes the, the DM's job easier to, like, I don't have to think about it. So I'll just, I'll read that and I'll focus on the stuff I do have to think about. It's interesting because my, like mentioning my sort of trajectory on how I got to this point and how, you know, I've been doing sessions that are text-based entirely. It's funny because like, as much as I understand and agree with what you're saying about, you know, uh, not doing dialogue pre-written and doing that on the fly. The thing is, when you do it on text, there is no non-pre-written dialogue. It's all, you You always have the time to think about what you're going to write. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of, I find that I write stuff that my guys are going to say, and then I change it according to how I need to change it. But like, I have a general idea of what they're going to talk about. Usually. That's, that's just it, right? Is like, uh, if I know that the PCs are going to get into a conversation with an NPC, rather than write out like quotes, I'll I'll write down like bullet point things that the the NPC might talk about. But the reason I don't want to read out pre-written dialogue is because I don't want to run the risk of it sounding different, right? Like if I write out how, if I write out an NPC who talks sort of like C3PO and then on the day, I I just sort of blank on that characteristic and I start, ah, oh, I start talking, he talks more like this, that I don't want the pre-written dialogue to sound weird. Or it's like, oh, dear R2, uh, good heavens, right? I, I want it to stay consistent when the players are in the scene, so. I feel like I'm in the opposite position where I want the writing to tell me what the tone of the character is so that I don't give every character a goblin voice. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair anyway um i think this is a good place to wrap the episode honestly what do you think did you did, had you pre-written that this is where we end the episode no not at all i had all sorts of other ideas but uh i thought you had a really good tavern pick and it went for a decent amount of time and uh i got my question well, asked then we'll and just I have, an have idea to pick for... it up on the next episode I have an idea for like maybe a segment we could add to the show, but that maybe maybe it'll come next time. Um, maybe if we ever if we even need a new segment, so like whatever. Uh, speaking of segments, here's the segment that I always do at the end. Uh, this has been episode fifty-seven. 
it was Operation Tobacco Beetle for me. Act two, Al's Aces. Uh, it was live from Everon session 11 for McGill. It has been the 13th of April, 2021. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, follow us on Facebook. Check us out. We are comparing campaign on Facebook. It's where I post uh, links to all the episodes when they go up. And... Um, if you uh, want to check out our supplemental material, our pictures, our links, all our stuff that we talk about, show notes, check it out on uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Anything else? Level up your barony. Ooh. Maybe yeah. I will. <laughs>